Hello and welcome back to the Psychedelic Spotlight podcast. I'm your host, Swati Sharma, radio host, blogger, and media director at Psychedelic Spotlight. And joining me today is Ed Prudeau. He is a journalist, advocate, and has written for major publications such as The Guardian, Financial Times, BBC, Vice, and for the alternative media platform, Rebel Wisdom. Other than Ed's media work, he is an enthusiast of the psychedelic experience, and he is looking to bridge the HPPD patient groups with the psychedelic community through his advocacy for the Perception Restoration Foundation, which is a charity that raises awareness and funds for studies into HPPD and visual snow syndrome. So it was really great to have Ed on this podcast. Um, it was so wonderful to be able to talk about such important topics such as harm reduction in the psychedelic space. Got to know a little bit more about his experiences with HPPD and how that kind of led him down this new trajectory into investigating its ramifications and how we can be a little bit more safe moving forward in the psychedelic space, knowing the risks that are involved with psychedelic use. You can find more of him and his writing at edprudeau.journoportfolio.com. If you do enjoy this podcast, please leave us a nice little rating or comment on Apple Podcasts. We would really, really appreciate that from you there. And I also wanted to mention that today's show is brought to you by Wakeful Travel, which is the ceremony companion company with microdosing journals, psychedelic journals, and more. Uh, they are such a fantastic company which is run by Janelle Dion, and uh, they provide fantastic structure to your integration sessions. Uh, this is the last week that the Kickstarter for the Wakeful Travel Journal is live, so please head to the link in the show notes and help Janelle Dion, the founder of Wakeful Travel, get to her goal. She's only 3K away and has had amazing reception from the psychedelic community about her work so far, so we are looking forward to more of that. Uh, without further ado, let's get into the episode. going yeah good thanks Wati. thanks for inviting me yeah thanks so much for uh, taking some time to join uh, me on the podcast today i'm really excited to learn a little bit more about all of the work that you're doing um, everything that you've kind of been touching on uh, with hppd so i kind of wanted to first get to know a little bit about your background i know that you are an accomplished writer you know you've written some great great pieces for some major publications. And now you're kind of working in this world as an advocate to get the message out and learn more about the research about HPPD. So how did that transition kind of go about for you? Right. Yeah. Um, well, thank, thank you for the, for the kind words. Um, so I, I've been very fascinated with, with, with psychedelics for, for a long time. Um, and that's made its way into my writing. So I've, I've covered psychedelics from a number of angles in, a, in, in articles. And, and I'm someone who's also lived with certain perceptual changes um, describable under the current label of, of HPPD since I was 17 and currently 23. And I suppose that there were, there were three main drivers for why I wanted to get more involved in awareness raising and advocacy. And that, that's currently with an organization I'm, I'm allied with called the Perception Restoration Foundation. And, and the first was hearing, honestly, how distressing and how severe these perceptual changes, which we'll get into later 
in the sort of you know how they work and what they are can be um including hearing tragically of people that had claimed their own lives and combine this with the general lack of discussion conversation and research around these changes and and then thirdly with the hype and the rapidity with which the psychedelic train uh is is currently pacing if if, if you put it like that and, and i'm and i think the hgpd is is a is a is a risk that will not affect um the majority of psychedelic users by any means but with the current rates of adult use and the ever and the ever present issue of of scaling psychedelic medicines in, in the legal clinical context i think that the fact that hgpd perceptual changes are real and the fact that they've been relatively neglected means that these will appear in, in increasing number and i felt that with my own um sort of subtle take on hgpd being that i'm an advocate for the responsible use of psychedelics but also someone who lives with some of their complications and the fact that you know i, learn, I know a lot about them i write about them and i wanted to use my audience and my spare time really to to try and engage in a bit of harm reduction. I, th I think the harm reduction is, is obviously emphasized a lot by some very smart people in the psychedelic space. But I thought the HGPD area was, was being comparatively neglected. So that's kind of what motivated me here. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. I'm so glad that you mentioned that kind of harm reduction piece and how this is kind of starting to become a little bit more aware within the industry itself, within the general public. But I feel that knowledge is just so difficult to access because it's not being talked about and it's not being emphasized, I feel like, in you know just our industry discourse in general. So what would you say is the risk of developing something like HPPD or hallucinogen persisting perception disorder? Um, in terms of attaching any estimate of numerical risk, it's it's really impossible to say. I mean, I'd, I'd first point to a survey that was done 10 years ago by the scientist and, and founder Matt Baggett, who's a fairly respected voice in the psychedelic community. And he did a survey in, in 2011 in, uh, in cahoots with, Ero with Erowid, um, the psychedelic information site. And they did a poll of around three to between three to and four thousand users of psychedelics and you can make certain you can raise certain methodological questions with how they did the survey but they found that in total around two-thirds of people who had ever used psychedelics reported certain perceptual changes after they used them and that, that seems to correspond with research that was done in the 20th century which found that up to 50 percent of lifetime hallucinogen users noticed that there were certain perceptual changes that lasted after they were sober. But but the crucial point that, that Bagger and Erowid converged on was that 4.2% of the sample had perceptual changes that were so distressing that they considered seeking clinical help. And that is how we technically define HPPD in the DSM, is that th these perceptual changes might actually be fairly normal and may not be that affecting. But for some people, um, either due to, you know, just like comorbid anxiety, mm -hmm. um, the, the severity or the, the frequency or the, the, the sheer like permanence in your everyday life of, the, of these perceptual changes can be very distressing. So I think that it's, it's really difficult to put any number on it with a lack of research, but the risk is real. And I think that it's, it's, it, it behooves the psychedelic community altogether to, to try and find out some to try and give some signal on it if, if only to help with you know prioritizing harm reduction because a, a challenging experience or a bad trip 
can affect everyone with the unpredictability of psychedelics. Um, and I think that alongside this necessarily has to be research into HVPD. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. Um, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that 4.2% find that they experience very distressing side effects and I guess would be considered condition for HPPD. Um, but those other perceptual changes as well, I feel like those are not really mentioned or talked about at all, I would say, you know, within this industry, within this movement. Um, if you were to kind of lay out what would signify an individual who has HPPD, what would those symptoms kind of look like for them? Right. So there are two types of HPPD, first off, although I'll say that I'm not necessarily convinced of the way that this is described, but I'll put that to one side for a second. So, so the first type of HPPD, which seems to be the minority experience, is it's called type one, uh, helpfully. And that's when these perceptual changes happen in periodic discrete bursts and, and often and often unpredictably and then the second type is when it's an invested feature of your everyday perception and they're constant so, so what are the perceptual changes so, so, so the first thing with hgpd is that it's 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 kind of loosely defined and, and it's a label we attach to a, a truly extraordinary range of symptoms but it seems that kind of visually common symptoms are um first off visual snow which is the sense that um, the world around you is coated with with a fine layer of kind of like grayish minute particles or almost like the static on an undialed TV. And visual snow syndrome is actually its, its own diagnosis, um, which people can have. Um, and alongside visual snow, you'll have uh, after images. So you might look at an object and then you look away. And then especially on, on blank surfaces, you'll see a kind of, whitish silhouettes of that object and, and i've seen some quite extraordinary descriptions of of after images w one that always stands out to me was a a guy describing how he was cheating on it on a, on a test once looked at this looked at the the test paper next to him uh some other some other the guy next to him was doing and then looked up at the wall and he could see clearly the answer the, per the person had written in wow. the after image which is extraordinary um and then otherwise you get trails, which is a, a fairly classic psychedelic uh, visual effect where kind of faint after images uh, kind of follow the object in motion. You have uh, some people, I don't have this myself, but some people have intense light sensitivity to the point where um, the sun, light, just being in any kind of light filled environment, uh, it becomes overwhelming and kind of bleaches their vision. So some people have to wear special sunglasses when they go outside. Um, otherwise people report, and th this is to the more severe end, you, you, you have some people reporting fairly florid psychedelic visuals like mandalas, uh, kaleidoscopes, and you, you, there are certain symptoms like pareidolia as well, which is the perception of faces in objects, almost the outline of faces. Um, and then outside of the visuals, there are certain cognitive effects of HGPD as well, which are quite striking. I, I've heard reports of people having completely disrupted thinking processes where it's almost like the, the linear thought process is subverted. You, you're, you're thinking backwards and forwards and jumping left and right. Uh, people report damage to their ability to process information and read, especially when um, this goes alongside visual changes where the text is constantly moving. Um, and also, but, but, but perhaps most importantly, is that HEPD is strongly correlated with comorbid anxiety, 
depression and panic. So, so, so I saw a, a, a small survey, I believe it was about 23 people of whom 90 plus percent experienced anxiety and depression, 90 plus percent experienced uh, strong dissociation, uh, feeling separate from their bodies, feeling separate from the world around them, like the world wasn't real. Um, and perhaps most strikingly, I think it was 69%, although I could be misremembering, had reported suicidal thoughts. So it's a really wide ranging set of symptoms that, 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 that kind of goes hand in hand with, with, with other mood and emotional changes. And I think it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's quite a concerning thing to find yourself with. Absolutely. I think that putting yourself, I guess, in a position where you're more likely to have those comorbid um, diseases have an onset is kind of concerning because, you know, people are using psychedelics to be able to counteract those issues in the first place, and they likely are already predisposed to that. So the idea of having, you know, a further onset if they were to have HPPD is is quite distressing, along with all of those visual perceptual symptoms. Um, I could only imagine what that was like. Could you outline maybe your experience with your kind of perceptual changes that you had mentioned that were kind of the catalyst for your learning a little bit more about HPPD? Of course. Um, so f- for me, it, HPPD style changes, um, you know, I, I prefer not to use the, the current diagnostic language of, you know, visual distortions or even necessarily to use the phrase HPPD altogether. But so I prefer to use perceptual changes. My perceptual changes kicked in, so to speak, if I recall correctly, uh, the day after uh, my fourth trip on LSD, which was a quite trying experience. And I think that the element of, of, of challenging experience, traumatic experience probably is tied to developing these changes. So it's the first thing I, I the first things I was noticing are the, the visual snow aspect, um, walls, especially walls with which, um, well, walls I had previously looked at when I was high on psychedelics would be moving. Um, I'd say my most common day-to-day symptom is when I'm, for example, focused on a laptop screen. Uh, there'll be the strong lights, the, there'll be the strong light, light sensitivity effects, but also the after images. Um, and then other things are like it, it kind of intensifies more if I'm tired. So I remember the other day I was with my roommate, uh, you know, in, in our living room and feeling a bit fatigued and the carpet and you know his the the outline of his of his face of his body was just kind of coated in this is quite brilliant bleached white uh, rainbow trim uh, the carpet was you know, kind of curling um, so these they really are quite florid and I remember another another time when I was in the park I was on a date and it was it was at night and the sky was covered in this I think it was I think it's described using the phrase blue topic blue field entopic phenomenon where a kind of like bluish hue uh kind of coats parts of your vision the the, the outline of the trees was bleached and rainbow trimmed so, so these kind of things although it really does vary a, a, according to kind of the intensity of an experience at any time or my fatigue or ca- or caffeine level but yeah that's a general outline that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so it sounds like you're still experiencing some of these symptoms. Um, if somebody was to have an onset of HPPD or other kind of perceptual affecting disorder or kind of uh, after effects, how long would that normally last for? 
that is, it's kind of an outstanding question is you know, how long do these last? Um, I think my, my first instinct would be to point to the work of Dr. Henry Abraham, who first codified HPPD uh, in 1983 um, as a disorder. And, and his work through consultations with hundreds of people reporting perceptual changes after psychedelics and other drugs was that for 50%, I believe it was that it would wear off within a year, but then the other 50%, it never goes away. And, and, and I'm reluctant to invest too much certainty in this, but for some people, we, we know for a fact that some people have had it for decades, you know, the, the old school trippers since the 70s. It's just, you know, they just had it for 45, 50 years and that's it. You know, so some people, I've, I've had friends that have noticed um, perceptual changes for for a few months at a time and then it just one day vanishes. And I think there, there are certain ways that we know. I mean, if, if you are really seriously looking to to eradicate your perceptual changes, I think that it, it, it might be possible. Uh, it, it just through through time, possibly abstaining from continuing to use drugs, which I haven't, and drug use has not exacerbated my uh, HEPD changes, but I think I'm, I, I might be just, that might just be my own individual experience. Um, getting sleep, um, perhaps avoiding caffeine. So I, it's, it's not necessarily a life sentence, and I, I don't even want to use that phrase, but we don't know, I, I guess, is is the only answer I can give with certainty. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's so little research in this area, but I think what is really incredible is that um, you're currently working in that area to be able to kind of contribute to more research about HPPD with the Perception Restoration Foundation. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So the, so the, the Perception Restoration Foundation, I think it was really promising when I um, when I first befriended one, one of the co-founders. Yeah, I, I, knew, I knew I had to get involved, really. And, and I, I suppose... I, I can dig a bit into into the work that that we're doing. So, so we've organised two main studies for now. The, the first is through Macquarie University in Australia, and that'll be headed up by uh, Dr. Harry McConnell, who, who's who actually works with the Australian equivalent of the Food and Drug Administration, and another guy called Dr. Uh, Paul Soman, and th- they'll be doing neuroimaging of HCPD patients' brains uh, versus controls. Um, this hasn't been done since Henry Abraham in the in the 80s. Um, so I'll be using this kind of state-of-the-art technology to see if there is a consistent neurophysiological change that's happened. Although the sheer range of drugs that's implicated in HCPD changes means that any simple answer probably isn't going to be found for now. And, and the fact that these perceptual changes, especially the visual snow and the afterimages, are, are already independently associated with certain um, with, for certain people with anxiety disorders. So I think that on, on a research level, much more needs to be done on what is the connection between states of hyperarousal and anxiety and and perceptual change. Um, and then the the other study that um, well the other kind of research effort that's, that's being pioneered by the PR for right now is through the University of Melbourne, and that, that, this will be a psychophysics tool kind of a way of representing visual phenomena on the screen where, and this will be a test that people can take to, to kind of gauge whether they may have HEPD. So it will kind of take them through a series of stages with the tool. And and, and the tool, it, it's hoped, will also help people understand whether they may be at risk of HEPD style perceptual changes. Because the work, the work of John Halpern and Torsten Passy, and this was uh, 
a series of in-depth interviews with HCPD patients um, seem to suggest that having some prior experience before before you ever took drugs of certain perceptual changes, which everyone might have, although if you had them more intensely, meant that you had a predisposition towards these being uh, intensified if you ever took psychedelics. So the psychophysics tool will, will test if people have these perceptual oddities, let's say, um, to an intense degree, which may suggest you will go on to develop HCPD if you decided to take psychedelics. And then kind of just, just to finish off quickly that on a, on a, on a, on a more on the back burner level, but the, the energy is, is, is still being moved in this direction considerably is uh, developing a, a large database of HCPD patients experiences. Cause I think that really we need to just have a, a strong catalog of what happened, what drugs do you take, what changes do you experience? Because it's, it's only through large samples really that you can get any real signal. Um, and then the, the other project is, um, is, is genetic testing. Uh, and this is being done with a company, eHave, uh, basically to see if there is a genetic vulnerability that we could possibly physically test people for. Uh, and if, and, and at, the, at the very least, if someone were to, or this is obviously very speculative for now, were to test positive for this genetic vulnerability, it at least gives them the step to, to, to pause and reflect and really wonder whether psychedelics are for them. And if, and if they still think it's worth taking the plunge, if they have a, you know, especially with this kind of clinical excitement around psychedelics right now, if they have treatment resistant depression and they still want to take that plunge, then more power to them. But at least mm -hmm. they know now that these perceptual changes may happen. Wow, that's so fascinating. I, I really can't get over that. The fact that there are tools that are in place or in the process of, you know, being developed right now that can really help us understand the risk associated uh, with psychedelic use, you know, as psychedelic use is going to be increasing in medical care. I, I just I can't wait to see how all of this goes so that people can protect themselves. You know, that's really a, an essential piece of the puzzle that I think is missing right now. Definitely. And I think that on a, it's interesting you mentioned earlier that the, the, the perceptual changes that lots and lots of people experience after psychedelics aren't talked about. And that's something that else I'd like to kind of raise discussions about is, you know, what do these perceptual changes mean and why aren't we talking about them? And, I, and, and my diagnosis of the problem is that the term flashback completely, just, it, it completely destroyed the the conversation. The idea of, of the flashback was so weaponized by uh, anti-drug propaganda in the, in the 20th century, and it has so penetrated everyday people's minds about psychedelics um, that people, I think, might be scared to share that that you know flashbacks. Although that that term is a, is a terrible one, it's and it's been completely muddied. Are real, mm -hmm. and maybe they don't have to be bad, but then. Some people, I mean, I'm talking to people behind the scenes who have experienced flashbacks in the community. I mean, they aren't bad. I mean, maybe they can be fun. Maybe they can be developmental. But the point is, we should talk about them, if only to avoid the surprise and the overwhelm that someone might experience if they start to happen for them. But I, but I think zooming out even further, it, it's going to take a real revolution in, in our current understanding in society at large about how we frame and understand the weird psychologically. I mean, the, the neurodiversity movement I think is a very exciting and laudable uh, cause, really. Just, just, just seeking r rather than pathologizing these stranger states of mind, uh, we just see it as kind of different correspondences on on a, on a spectrum. 
And I think we're learning increasingly that what we call hallucinations aren't necessarily that abnormal. Um, and they don't necessarily have to be labeled and pathologized. And I think that on a background level, this kind of move with, with perceptual changes after psychedelics might be very useful. That's a great point that you've made, you know, I think normalizing the idea that we do not all perceive the world in the same way is kind of an essential piece of the puzzle. Also, just to further our movement of using psychedelic medicine in general, right? Um, not being afraid of that unknown factor. And if you do enter the unknown, what does that mean for you and your life? And how do we navigate that new state of being now? It's, it's an interesting question. And I think that we're going to be having a lot more conversations like this as things continue to accelerate in the space, which they're doing at a really rapid speed. I would say, you know, the technological innovations seem to be um, going beyond public knowledge and understanding at this point. And uh, I don't know if we're ready, you know, to be at the point that we are at on that level. Mm, yeah, yeah. I have, I have mixed feelings on the, on the medicalization of, of psychedelics, because I think psychedelics, in terms of their experiences, they, they are, they can be so profoundly shocking and such a profound break from from conventional consensus reality that they're like, they're like psychological and, you know, philosophical dynamite. And I think yeah. that HCPD is kind of like, I think HCPD is kind of the, the tip of the spear, both it, it kind of, it, it captures everything really that they, the, the harm reduction component and the, the, the neurodiverse component. But I think that HCPD, not, not only from a harm reduction perspective needs to be explored because if we find out what HGPD is and what's going on, I think it will tell us something fascinating about consciousness and how perception works. I mean, because we already know that there's this correlation between anxiety and trauma and perceptual change. And how fascinating would that, would that be if we found out just how deeply interconnected vision and emotional experience are? I, I think it'd be fascinating. And I, I think psychedelic researchers if they're listening, uh, should research it. <laughs> I completely agree. I mean, that is kind of an essential component of this piece, right? There is significant um, psychological influence, and then there's that spiritual and philosophical aspect, but that visual element, that visual world that we're entering, and how that influences us on a biological level, but also on a cognitive, um, a psychological level, it's just that is something that I think is further to be explored, let alone, you know, so many other areas that we are just scratching the surface of. Um, there's a lot of time, I think, for us to continue this work, but it's great that people like you are really kind of advocating for it, spearheading these things forward, because it's essential. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank, thank you. Uh, and I guess something else I'd like to, to emphasize is that, for, as far as I can tell, that the key concern right now is, for, for the psychedelic renaissance, so to speak, is the kind of scaling issue. And, you know, psychedelic therapy, psychedelic assisted therapy is so labor intensive and, and so costly. And the, the mental health crisis is, is so immediate and so vast and so demanding that that making demand hit supply will be a big, uh, it's going to be a, a big logistical challenge. And I think that HCPD is precisely the kind of risk that could fall in the cracks if there isn't energy right now, um, particularly exploring the role of integration in avoiding distressing perceptual change. And I, I suspect uh, based on my experience and the experiences of many others, that these perceptual changes could have been avoided if kind of in the refractory period after the psychedelic experience, 
it were properly integrated, uh, any traumas were adequately processed. And, and I think that unless there is, I, I think, real definition about what we mean by integration, uh, how it works, and whether we're going to have enough good integration, enough good th integration therapists, you know, the integration apps and digital solutions, we, we, we're not, it remains to be seen whether whether they are going to be effective. Um, but I think that there needs to be serious consideration on these issues. And yeah, HGPD, it's it's not going to be the, the overwhelming greatest risk, but I think that unless it's addressed, as I've emphasized a number of times, it, it, it will surface. And that there's a risk mm -hmm. that it becomes weaponized because, you know, I, the, the flashback idea is still... It still, it still penetrates a lot of people's minds. The idea of the flashback, P people probably know as much about flashbacks from their, from their time in school in the seventies, eighties, and nineties as they do about the current psychedelic renaissance. That is their idea about what psychedelics can do to you. And I think that there's a risk unless the psychedelic community takes ownership of a risk like HGPD, the other side will do it for us. Um, and what that and what how the regulatory community will feel about, you know, a sudden a sudden kind of controlled explosion of HGPD cases, uh, it, it worries me too, um, mm. because you know who knows how a regulator might feel that, that this sudden explosion of a, a strange side effect like this, and it hasn't been addressed, it hasn't been explored. Is it being chased up and monitored enough? I don't know. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation right now because I've had these exact thoughts myself, just wondering, you know, what is going to happen when these cases are increasing? People do not have enough knowledge and understanding. They're being encouraged to take uh, therapeutic doses, heroic doses to heal their trauma, quote unquote. Are we letting people know about the risks associated with this? And how will that affect uh, this entire movement moving forward as an alternative means of healing our mental health and physical health? You know, I, I really do wonder and hope that we can make sure that we are putting in the infrastructure early on and really hammering that home, you know, for the harm reduction, for the research, so that people are aware and we're not glorifying psychedelics and we're not putting them on a pedestal and assuming that they're a panacea of, of wellness and healing for all because there are serious, very real risks associated and I really appreciate you kind of outlining this for us. I do kind of want to know what are some other things that you think that people should be aware of when they're using psychedelics on a more consistent, higher dose, recurring basis? Oh, so something I don't think is addressed enough is uh, the addictive potential of psychedelics. You know, it's, it's kind of easy to say, oh, you know, psychedelics are physically non-addictive. Uh, people often say that they're psychologically non-addictive because the experience is, you know, it's so intense, man. You, you, you don't want to do it again for a few months at least. But I think it's too easy to brush aside the addictive potential of psychedelics because the experience is so meaningful potentially the experience can be so overwhelmingly just fun and aesthetic and beautiful and, and especially in a world that's increasingly pessimistic and seemingly sapping of sapped of meaning that it is possible to become psychologically addicted to psychedelics entirely possible and i think that this aligns especially with a kind of a concept which i find quite persuasive which is the idea of ontological addiction which i've heard jamie wheel from the the flow genome project discuss which, which is the idea that you know the mystical there is no space in society right now for the mystical and when you have 
a, a, a deeply powerful mystical experience and then you plunge back down to the, to the drab or the comparatively drab every day there is a push to go back there and then i think that you know there almost needs to be a conversation had about you know what, what does it mean to be a member of a psychedelic community do you, do you if if am i a member if i keep taking psychedelics do i have to try lots of different psychedelics uh so i think there can be a certain self-pressure to kind of keep taking them and um and i would be curious to see if people will come forward and discuss their own experiences of kind of possible dependence because you know when, when i was in when i was at university and i was young a lot of people doing psychedelics are young i didn't have i didn't i didn't have much work to do i was just at university i could skip lectures I went through a period of using psychedelics too much. I think lots of people have experiences when they would, they have experience of using them fit with, with a certain worrying frequency. And, and I was one of them. And I, and I do wonder if there is an addictive role rather than, oh yeah, it's super fun. And, uh, and it, they're healing me so much. I just want to keep doing it. Um, so that's one. And I think that the, the other, if there's time, the, the other, of course, yeah. the other risk, which I think is, pretty underexplored actually is the bad trip i mean jules evans uh the british writer and philosopher the guy behind the platform philosophy for life he wrote this really great article for his medium page in january uh in which he revealed that li literally no research has been done on how to integrate so-called challenging experiences mm -hmm. and i i i i can't i can't believe it uh and the fact that, and kind of as I alluded earlier, the fact that integration is so, is so, is so easily become a buzzword, and is so, it's kind of so loosely and conceptually weakly defined that people don't necessarily know what to do, and and the fact that we live in a strongly pathological psychiatric culture that doesn't really have a language to discuss the weird, the the philosophical, the mm -hmm. spiritual means people can get lost after they take psychedelics especially the high dose and and, I, and i've actually veered away from high dose experiences because i i'm not sure that's a, a pandora's box i want to open for myself but you know even with my sort of one one and a half tabs of lsd experiences some of them were so profoundly dissociated from what my everyday life is like that they have been hard to integrate and i didn't and you know journaling meditation i feel like there are new ways of approaching and thinking about integration to come that will be exciting mm -hmm. you make a great point i think that there is a lot of information that is being distributed kind of like colloquial terms now that we are using like integration set and setting and it's that's all fine and well but i think the nuances of what exactly that means for an individual's experience is really not being focused on um and and kind of like how i mentioned you know that kind of sugarcoating glorification because we of course want to make sure that this movement continues to move ahead but talking about these issues in a very kind of you know matter of fact way and just presenting the research and, and saying, hey, these are the real risks that are involved. Take these at your own risk and, and consider that is important as well. Um, you mentioned that the idea of people taking higher doses and then maybe not understanding how to integrate it into their lives. I think a lot of that comes from people 
potentially kind of entering the realm of spiritual emergency, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and that's something that I'm really interested in because I understand the ramifications of being in a state where you really do not understand th- this mystical experience that you've encountered, especially if you maybe aren't a spiritual person to begin with. That can be very destabilizing. That can be very jarring. Um, have you ever experienced anything of the sort or you know anybody who's maybe gone through um, an yeah. episode? Yeah. Um, you know, I went through an experience. So I had pr- probably my most powerful uh, psychedelic experience was a, a kind of ego dissolution experience uh, when I was, you know, I just turned 20 when I was at university and it was a very beautiful experience, pr- probably up there with one of the greatest experiences of, of my entire life. But then, you know, what do you do after that? And and I think that this experience was linked to a later episode I had about a year later in which I went through maybe five days to a week of quite of quite profound periodic dissociation, uh, kind of the depersonalization, derealization, which the majority of HGPD sufferers go through and in, in which I glimpse the, the unreality of the ego. And then in, in this period of particular stress, uh, kind of calling in which my ego has already been called into question. I, I feel like that particular psychedelic experience, which I hadn't integrated, meant that I could slip into kind of the darker side of ego dissolution, which is just being dissociated. And I and the fact that, you know, how can you just talk to your parents about a weird psychological experience like that? Uh, and I certainly didn't feel comfortable doing it. And I think that with psychedelics in general, um, for them really to sort of work uh, and for their risk to be managed on the deepest levels, it, it would take a revolution in how our culture works at the kind of deep code level. I think that our culture is probably far too utilitarian, rational, uh, consensus, reality-based, really to make sense of them. Uh, whether, whether psychedelics can create those kind of changes uh i I hope so um but i'm not necessarily sure yeah i mean i i think we've spoken a lot about i guess the risks involved some of the challenges that are associated with higher dose psychedelic trips um and you know the outcomes such as hppd but i've heard people actually taking away uh or emerging i guess from those experiences having learned more about themselves and it actually kind of being a more beneficial experience for them um is there anything else that you can kind of chat about about how can we reframe these experiences to actually you know kind of benefit us in the longer run well Something that comes to mind first is that is is the is the large number of people that have experienced perceptual changes after psychedelics that, that aren't necessarily HGPD style. Uh, you know, I was just talking to to James W. Jess on on his podcast a few weeks ago, and and his sort of flashback experiences, if you want to call them that, were, were states of profound beauty, which he was, which if anything contributed to just the general level of pleasure he had in his everyday life, which is completely fine. Um, but in terms of the more severe end of, you know, spiritual emergency, HGPD changes, I, I, you know, I suspect that HG, that, that um, HGPD is somehow correlated with, with trauma and shock to the nervous system. And if HGPD is a symptom of trauma, and, and, the, and if you later go and integrate that trauma and process it, 
then there's the strong possibility of post-traumatic growth, um, which is, I think, a, a growing area of research in the sort of psychotherapy clinical literature is that, that trauma doesn't necessarily have to destroy you. It can actually make you if you grow if you grow through it and you integrate it you know with my experience of uh with that kind of dissociative experience at at the very least uh it gave me a greater awareness of the mind's capacity to sort of go wrong it it, it gave me a i i I would say it made me a more empathetic person uh it it made me i think it gave me a more of an, an everyday vocabulary of what, of what egoless not might look like. So in, in a sense, it kind of, it maybe brought that ego dissolution experience I had on LSD back to the nitty gritty of everyday life for me. Um, but I think that in treating HCPD distressing changes in general, I think the the number one solution seems to be, if we can even say solution is just a complete acceptance is that all you ever have is, is, your is your moment by moment experience and if you are experiencing perceptual oddities how, however severe they might be it's it would help if you just accepted that 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 the fact of the present moment is what it is i, I don't i don't want to sound too, too cosmic but and then re, re, through acceptance you lower your anxiety and lower anxiety means you obsess on your symptoms less and that makes your symptoms less it makes your symptoms less distressing so accepting hgpd is a bridge to reducing its severity and maybe overcoming it altogether. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Um, I think also, you know, maybe there's an element of prevention that we can also explore too, you know, having a more safer approach to our psychedelic exploration. I'm assuming probably considering, you know, smaller doses or more manageable doses, maybe not tripping so frequently. Um, Is there anything else that you would add to that? I was going to say, maybe avoid cannabis because, you know, I've heard some authorities in HGPD space say that cannabis will invariably make it worse or, you know, fix your symptoms so they won't go away. But I, I just, I just don't know because some people are able to safely use drugs of all kinds after HGPD and it doesn't necessarily uh, make it worse. But if some people after, you know, just smoke cannabis once and it makes it permanently worse. So I just don't know. Um, but, and this is purely my subjective opinion, but I, I would say that if someone is currently undergoing a an experience of HGPD, I think they, they should do some sort of introspective reflection and try and try and see, you know, what 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 was that psychedelic experience like that created these changes? Do you think it might have been traumatic? What went wrong? What went wrong in the days after the experience? The kind of context in which these changes took place. And I think that you might find that there was more background anxiety, emotional stress than you might have otherwise supposed. And perhaps then you could explore going and seeing a psychedelic integration specialist, you know, not some Instagram shaman, but but a real one, someone who's trained. And I think that, you know, if only, even if it doesn't reduce the, the intensity of your perceptual changes, it at least gives you a kind of meaning making framework to, to just process what happened. And I think that that in, it, that in itself can be therapeutic. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that was so insightful, Ed. I, I have to say, I really enjoy being able to chat with people um, about psychedelics and understanding different facets of this industry and, you know, really touching on these important topics that I personally don't think are as prevalent, you know, in the day to day conversation. So thank you so much for taking time to chat with me today. And um, we would love to know kind of what else you're up to, where everybody can find you online if they want to hear some more from you. Cool. Uh, well, thanks a lot for inviting me. It was a, it was definitely a pleasure. Um, you can kind of go on my portfolio website, which is just in my Twitter bio. It's also link, it's also on my LinkedIn if you want to just look at my name. And that has all, all, all the articles I've published, both on a freelance basis and for the media organization Rebel Wisdom, which also has a YouTube channel. Uh, and in terms of the my work with the PRF, uh, the URL is quite simple. It's just Perception Foundation. And at the moment, it's a little bare bones, the website. It has uh, some basic overviews of the studies we're working on, some FAQs. Um, and in terms of my more just day-to-day -day communications, I'm, I'm semi-active on Twitter, although trying to get off it a bit. Uh, so you can you can give me a follow on there if you like. Um, yeah, that's, that's about it. Perfect. Well, thanks so much again. And I can't wait to hear more from you soon. All right. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the Psychedelic Spotlight podcast are those of their own and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Psychedelic Spotlight and Global Track Solutions, Inc.